Hey guys, um, my name is Justin Cabot. I'm the children's pastor here for Edgewater. On paper, that means that my job is to coordinate volunteers, make sure that they're in the right classrooms with the right kids. My job is to make sure they have all the equipment and supplies that they need in order to make Sundays and Wednesdays awesome for kids so that kids want to come here and get to know about Jesus and get to hear about what God has done. But not only that they would know about Jesus, the hope is that they would get to know Jesus as their Savior, as their God, as a friend who's closer than a brother. And when I looked over this year and I thought about Easter and all the awesome events we were going to have and all the plans that we had in store for kids, um, that's changed. A lot of things are different now. Um, not really in a way that I would like. It's, it's honestly disappointing because now instead of being face-to-face with kids, which I love and yelling and shouting and having fun, now it's been a lot of Instagram Um, ECF kids on Instagram recording songs and teachings and challenges for kids, writing and recording devotionals for parents to do at home with their kids, trying to find any way that we can engage kids. And it's not necessarily the way I'd want to do it, but it's what we have right now. Everything from the beginning of this year to right now has changed. It's just different. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this, that you, I'm sure every person I don't think there's one person left out has had their life changed. Your routine has changed, the way you do life, the way you do your job, even if you're able to do your job, it's all changed. I don't think anyone is exempt from having something in their life be completely altered. And when that happens, when great changes happen and we're in the midst of times of uncertainty, there can be a lot of feelings that come with it. There can be anxiety and depression and anger and sadness and a multitude of emotions that boil up in us as things change. And so that's why, as a church, it's been so great that we've been going through the book of Psalms. Because the Psalms offer for you and for me, the believer, a way to process our emotions unlike anything else. A unique way to process and go through those emotions, the There's some religious sects that the way that they treat emotion is to bottle it up, to hide it, to lock it away. Don't let that come out. That's not for the believer to feel those things. The believer shouldn't ever feel angry or sad or doubt or depressed. You bottle those things, you hide them away. Whereas the secular side goes to the other extreme and they say, no, you need to be true to who you are. You got to run after those emotions. You follow that. You don't deny yourself that. The Psalms... They tell us, don't bottle up your emotions, but don't bow down to them. Instead, what they teach us to do is to meditatively go to the Lord with them and to process those emotions in the presence of God. And today we're going to be looking in Psalm chapter three. And what we have is we have a king who's in a moment of real uncertainty, a lot of distress, a lot of tribulation, a lot of anxiety and fears pressing in on him. And David, what he does in this psalm is he takes all of his problems and he goes to God with them. And what happens is, you see, while everything is upside down and wrong, he goes to God and his perspective has changed. To give you some context of what is happening, he's got a son whose name is Absalom. And Absalom is a unique character in the Bible because from the top of his head, the Bible tells us, to the bottom of his foot, he's perfect. He physically is perfect. He is the tip top 
epitome of what it means to be manly, to be handsome. When people look at him, they go, that's a leader. That's a guy I want to follow. And that could be hard for us to picture. So I'll tell you the same thing I tell my wife. Just imagine me mixed with Danny DeVito. And you've got it. It's the whole spectrum of what you'd want in a human. It's the epitome of human manliness, of beauty, of handsomeness. You'd go, that's a guy I want to follow. So whatever image Justin DeVito conjures up in your brain, just let that image take residence up there whenever you think of Absalom. You're welcome. So what happens is Absalom, this beautiful man, he's chasing after his dad, David. He's such a handsome, beautiful, manly person that the nation looks at Absalom and they go, that's a guy I want to follow. That's the guy I want to go after. And Absalom riles the whole nation against his dad and says, if we get rid of him, I'll be your king. And so the nation turns against him and he's run out of his city. And so David, literally everything that could be going wrong is going wrong right now. And while he could be overwhelmed and burdened and want to give up and ready to just throw in, what he does is he turns to God and he processes his problems before God and God offers him providence. So today we're going to be looking at the problems that David is facing and we're going to look at the providence that God alone can bring. And what we're going to see in that is that fright and danger and perils and distress should drive us to God and not away from God. So here we go. Psalm chapter three, if you've got your phone, if you've got your Bible, open it up and we'll read it together. It's a Psalm called, Save Me, O My God. Probably something you've said this week. O Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Yahweh, save me. Oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. So the first thing that we see is the problems that David is facing in verse one and two. You have this king. He's powerful. He's certain of his position. As he looks over his kingdom at the beginning of this year and plans out the kingdom, economically, he's stable. Financially, he knows what he's got. He knows what he's looking forward to. He knows where his kingdom is headed. And then almost overnight, everything has changed. Everything is different. He's got so many problems that they seem innumerable. He can't count how many people have come against him. He can't count all the problems that he has. And a big problem is what people are saying about him. Many people are saying that there's no salvation for me in God. And so here's what he's talking about. There was a king before David whose name was Saul. And Saul also was very handsome, was very manly. And the whole kingdom, all of Israel came together and said, that's going to be our king. God, we want him as our king. And so the Lord said, okay, Saul will be king. But Saul sins greatly against God. And God removes his spirit from Saul and puts it 
on David. And for a season, David is a great king. There's a ton of kingdoms that come against him that he fights against and he's victorious over. God is giving David everything he could ever want. He's providing, he's coming through. But one day, David sees something that's not his. It's this woman named Bathsheba, who's the wife of a guy named Uriah, who's a soldier in David's army. And David decides he's gonna have this woman. And he does, and she gets pregnant. And David decides the best way to handle this is to get rid of Uriah. I'm gonna kill him. So David commits adultery, conspires to commit murder, commits murder. That's a pretty great sin against God. And so now the people are saying, well, when Saul sinned, David became king. And when David sinned, now Absalom is rising up, so Absalom must be king. God must be moving all of his favor from David to Absalom. And what happens is when people forget about the brokenness of this world, we expect life to be fair. We expect that when bad things happen to people, well, it's because of your sin. It's because you've done something wrong. You deserved this. But here's what you have to remember is Saul, when he sinned, he didn't go to God. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't want to change his life. But when David sinned, he went to God and he asked for forgiveness. And what the Lord said to David is he said, I'm not going to hold your sin against you. It doesn't mean there's no consequences for his sin. I'm not going to hold your sin against you. But in your family, there's going to be a lot of evil. And David is experiencing that evil right now. And all of the nation who wants the world to be fair, they look at David going through hard times and say, God must have left him. And that's what can happen to us when we go through hard times is we believe the classic lies of the enemy, that God has abandoned you, that God doesn't hear you, that God's holding out on you, that God is distant, that God has forgotten you, that God's not capable to help you. These lies that the enemy loves to throw at you and me when we're in really difficult times. And I feel like for you and me, when we pray, often this is the step that we get to where we take to God all of our problems, all of our issues, everything that the enemy is saying about us, we take to God the battlefield, but then sometimes we'll say, okay, fix it, God. But I feel like most of the time what we do is we keep piling on our issues, and then eventually our imagination runs wild, and we stop adding on real issues, and we start logically running through how bad our issue could possibly be. And we start saying, and then if this happens, then next week, this will happen and my job will be gone and the business will never recover and I'm not gonna be able to provide. And we logically go through all these issues and instead of when praying, finding peace and comfort in the Lord, instead we get more overwhelmed because we can do that. But here's what David does when he prays. He doesn't just give God all problem and problem and problem and problem and keep stacking up issues. All that could be conjecture, all that he made up in his head might not even be true. Then he turns to what I believe is the antidote to a low spirit. It's the antidote for when you've got no courage. He takes to God his problems, but then he asserts what he knows is true. He turns to who God is. He turns to what the Bible says is truth. So look at verse three. I think it's the pivotal verse of Psalm chapter three. It's where everything for David changes and it's where everything for you and me can change too. Here's what he says. Verse three starts with, but you. He's got all these problems. All these people are saying things about me, but you, God. This is who I know you are. This is what your word says you are. This is who your word says 
you are, that you're going to come through for me. Here's what happens. The hardest thing sometimes for you and me is to get our eyes off of the problem and instead fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith. The hardest thing for you and me can be to take our eyes off of our hardship and instead focus them on God. It's like during this time, I've, I've taken it to teach my daughter how to ride a bike. In the afternoons, we've been going on bike rides. And so she's got this little bike that doesn't have wheels. It's just for balancing. She's four. And I'll go on a bike with her and I'll be behind her most of the time as we go down hills because I want to watch her. But as we're going, she wants to see where I am and wants to see how excited I am and proud I am of her. So she'll keep looking behind her. But as she does, every time she looks away, her wheel changes direction. And I keep telling her, every time you look at me, every time you try to look away from where you're trying to go, you're going to crash. You got to be careful. You need to look where you want to go. And it could be the same way for us in life, where if we have our eyes fixed on our problems, fixed solely on everything that's going bad, the way that you interpret life is going to be bad. You're going to run off the rails. It's going to be a very accidental shift, but it's going to get you going in the wrong direction. The Bible tells you and me as believers, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. In the midst of hardships, in the midst of trials, in the midst of all of this stuff that can be going on around us, our bad circumstances, we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith. And here's what happens to David when he does that. He calls God his shield. God is his shield. It's imagery used all throughout the Bible. Ephesians 6 will talk about this and say that we as believers are to pick up the shield of faith. So what's a shield do? Well, a shield is supposed to offer protection, Right? And if we have the shield of faith, then shouldn't that mean that if I have enough faith, well, then I should be offered protection against any sort of danger or hardship or tribulation or difficulty, right? If I just believe hard enough, if I have enough faith, then I'm protected from harm. Doesn't that make sense? Well, here's the problem with that. The Bible tells us that we're not exempt from hardship and difficulty and tribulation. It doesn't mean that we're free from difficulty. In fact, big faith does not mean that you're going to be safe. So here's what happened earlier in the month. There was this pastor. His name was Bishop Gerald Glenn, and he was in Virginia, and he came to his congregation, and he said, guys, I've got big faith. We've got a big God, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to have faith and we're going to believe, and God is going to protect our community even when everything else is being destroyed. My faith is bigger than hand sanitizer or face masks. And what happened is this pastor died, and his daughter was on the news, and I was watching her, and she was so confused and hurt why her God didn't save her dad. Because this is what her dad had been talking about. Hey, we've got big faith. You can be safe. You'll be secure. And this isn't new. When I first got married, a man told my wife, hey, if you had bigger faith, you wouldn't have a cold. And that's just insanity. But that's what happens when we take scripture out of context and we misquote the Bible. It's the same thing that Satan does to Jesus in Luke chapter four, where he comes to Jesus using scripture, trying to get Jesus to fail, to give in, to give up. And what happens when we misunderstand scripture is we can cause other people to do that same thing. The Bible does not say that God is our shield to tell us there's no more danger here. In fact, I think when God is a shield, when the Bible tells us that God is our shield, it almost ensures that there's danger. And let me tell you what I mean. When I was, before I worked at Edgewater, I worked at a church in San Diego, and I got to work in a really nice part of San Diego, but I lived in a place called Lakeside. 
which my family moved to back in the 70s, and it was a much different place. And there's been a gradual and general decline in some areas, and we'll call it ghetto, some spots. And so one day I was driving home from work, and I don't listen to the radio. I listened to my iPod, and I listened to podcasts, and so I had no idea what was going on. But I guess what happened is past this apartment complex I was driving by, there was a man who had an altercation with his girlfriend. The neighbors called the cops, so a police officer shows up to investigate the disturbance. And when the police officer came up the stairs, that man took that police officer hostage, which is a no-no. They don't like that. They prefer you don't do something like that. That's not something that's recommended. And so while this man had this police officer hostage, I'm driving past this um, apartment complex, and all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, and I do listen to music pretty loud, this SWAT car comes around the corner, lights on, siren going, and a man jumped out of the back, and he had a shield. And my brain, when I saw that shield, never told me, oh, there's a shield here. There's no danger. No, when I saw that shield, I went, something bad is happening. I'm in a bad place. I need to get out of here. That shield told me there is danger. So what does it mean when the Bible tells us that God is our shield? It's not promising that there's no danger for believers, but it's promising you and me that we have something in danger. See, the Bible tells us in the book of Daniel that there's uh, two groups of people. One of them was Daniel himself. Daniel faithfully sought the Lord. He would pray to him on a routine basis all throughout the week. And the people who hated him made a government decree that said, if you pray to anyone other than the king, well, you'll be killed. And the way that we like to teach that story is we say, see, it was, Dave, it was Daniel's faith that got him out of the lion's den. But the story is this, that it's his faith that caused him to faithfully come to God and pray to him and seek his word and seek what his will was for his life that actually got him thrown in the den of lions. And then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who's in the same book of Daniel, where they, because of their faith, were prohibited from worshiping an idol. And so when the king gathered them together and said, hey, you need to worship this idol or I'm going to throw you in a furnace, what they said is, our God is big enough is strong enough and is capable to deliver us out of that furnace. But here's the important part. They said, even if he doesn't, I'm still not gonna worship your idol. See, the faith wasn't that God was going to pull them out, even though he's capable, even though he can, even though he can heal. Their faith wasn't in that. Their faith was in something different. And this is what happens in that particular story. They get thrown in the furnace and Nebuchadnezzar, the king, looks in the furnace and says, there's someone else in there with them. And he looks like the son of God. And then with Daniel in the lion's den, the Bible tells us that the Lord shut the mouths of the lion. The Bible doesn't tell us God is a shield to mean that we're gonna be protected from danger, that we're gonna be shielded from hurts and hardship and tribulation. The Bible tells us God is our shield because he's telling us God goes with us into the battlefield, that God goes before us. When we have the shield of faith that Ephesians 6 tells us its purpose is to to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. Its purpose is to tell us that when the enemy says, God doesn't care, God doesn't hear, God's not listening, God has abandoned you, we go, no, my God is with me through this tribulation, through this distress, through this hardship. Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would ever look at hardship and trial again? Do you think the next time the king said you had to bow down to an idol, they would go, oh, maybe we should this time? No way! 
They know through the, what they had experienced, my God is with me. And we as believers, we're supposed to look at God and know that he's not keeping us safe from danger, but he's going with us into danger. Shields are only helpful if you're facing an enemy moving forward. And so here's for the believer, for you and me, Romans 5.2 is a verse you're probably familiar with the first part. This is how we're supposed to be in hardship and tribulation. It says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we love that part, don't we? But there's more. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You see, for the believer when we know that God is our shield and that God goes with us into danger, God goes with us into hardship, God doesn't abandon us, but he's present with us in these things, something happens for you and me. We're in the midst of suffering where everyone else can be crushed and worn out and give up. What can happen for you and me as we draw near to the Lord is we get endurance. Endurance just means you don't get, you don't get worn out by the things that used to wear you out. The things that used to happen that would leave you tired and empty and frustrated and done well, that doesn't happen for you anymore. You are able to endure hardship now. You're able to endure when a king says, obey or get thrown into the furnace, because you go, no, my God's with me. You're able to produce character from that. Where now in the future, you go, I, I can be honest, even when it's hard, I can stand up for what is right, even when everyone else is telling me not to. I can be a person of integrity because my God goes with me. And then ultimately, it leads us to hope where we get to become people who are transformed by hope, where your, past, your whole perspective has changed, where now when someone is threatening with death and lions and tigers and you're getting threatened with a furnace, you're able to look at those things and go, man, I can't wait to see how God comes through for me again. I'm looking at this hardship going, I can't wait to see how God prevails again and moves me forward again. So that's the first thing David says. He says, God is my shield. God has come through in the past He's going to come through in the future. And even if I experience hard things, I know my God understands where I'm at. My God hasn't left me. He's with me. He hears me. And here's the next thing he says. He says, God is my glory. It's this Hebrew word that means weight. It's this Hebrew word kavod, which means weight, which means substance. It's the thing that your life is about. It's what gives your life meaning. It's the primary focal point of who you are. And before all of this happened, David could have said, well, it's my moral standing. It's that people look at me and they know I'm a man after God's own heart. That could have been what gave his life value and weight and substance. It could have been the position that he had, the fact that he ruled a castle. Maybe he desperately wanted people to think that he was a really good dad. And there's not a whole lot of evidence of that anymore. Now, all of those things that he could have gloried in, they're now gone. And so if he had all of his weight, all of his substance, everything that he was living for in those things, well, he's got nothing now. He's got nothing. But here's what he does. He says, no, God is my glory. God is the one who gives me weight, who gives me value, who gives me substance in life. And when I was looking at this, I was thinking, who, what do we glory? In this time, I think you see it where believers who love Jesus, who trust Jesus, whose Jesus is their God, we find in times like this where everything in our routine, everything that we're used to in life gets threatened, you go, turns out that may have been my glory. Because now that thing's threatened, I'm scared and I'm anxious and I'm fearful and I'm angry. 
It could have been your job, your position, the business that you ran, the way that people looked up to you, your ability to provide for your family. Whatever it was that gave you substance and weight that you go, this makes me important. When those things are threatened, when that thing's gone, you're left a particular way of empty and anguished because it's, it's left you. And here's what David finds. David finds that in this moment where he's deprived of all of his comfort, all of his possessions, his position, all the support of everyone around him, when he's deprived of everything else he could have lived for, he can't be deprived of God. And Matt shared this awesome quote with me from Corey Tinboom that says this, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Sometimes it takes the loss of everything to know really what our glory is. And you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And in this season, I think we're presented with, man, what really do I think I need? What really do I think I need that gives my life value? Is it Jesus and what Jesus has done for me and the way Jesus looks at me? Or is it the things that I have and the things I can do and whatever is built out of me? So David says that God is his shield, God is his glory, and that God is the lifter of his head. Before this pandemic, there used to be these social gatherings, and it's been a very long time since we've used these words, so I'll try to pronounce it correctly. It's parade, parade. It was parades. So in towns, there'd be these gatherings of people. They'd line up together for parades. And when my daughter was two, I took her to her very first one. And I remember I'm pushing her in the stroller, and we got there a little late because I got kids, and for every kid, you're allowed 15 minutes of late time. So I'm there a little late, and the parade is starting. And my daughter's in the stroller, and all she can hear is chaos. She hears people cheering and marching, and she hears the guys in the little scooters doing donuts, and she hears the semi-trucks blowing their horns, and it just sounds crazy. But my daughter, from her perspective, all she can see is the backsides of people, and all she can hear is the chaos, and it just seems like bad. But my perspective, I see what's happening, and it's awesome. And it's not until I lifted my daughter up, because when I'm looking at her in the stroller, I could see, I don't like this, Dad. She's got fear on her face. She's like, this isn't fun. Whatever you thought was going to happen isn't happening here, Dad. But I pick her up, and she sees what I can see. All of a sudden, her countenance changed. The thing that was scary, she goes, that's really cool. I really like that. And I think for you and me, what can happen is we don't get God's perspective when all we do is we bring out our problems and instead we just get the butts of people. Where all we get is the, but what if this happens? But the economy's gonna fail. But financially, you're not gonna make it. But the job's never gonna recover. You get all of these buts, but really we need to approach God and get his perspective that he alone is able to lift us up and give us what he's doing, while all we hear is chaos and we're afraid and we're freaking out, if we could just get God's perspective, we'd see, wow, he's working something in this. He's doing something in this. I never, I never considered that in the middle of town there would be men dressed up like cavemen. But look, there is, Dad. This is awesome. That's the perspective that you and I can get only when we come to God, knowing that he is our shield, that he's our glory, and that he's the lifter of our head. And so here's another psalm that David writes. Because, you know, this isn't the only troubled time that you're going to have in life. The next psalm that David wrote is Psalm 43, 5, which says this, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's looking, soul, why are you cast down? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, 
for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You guys, perils, distress, tribulation, hard times, they're supposed to drive you to God, not away from God. They're supposed to drive you to him. This could be an opportunity for you to grow in your prayer life like you've never experienced before. This can be an opportunity for you to grow in the way you know scripture, the way you follow Jesus, the way you present him to your kids and to your spouse like you've never been able to before. But here's the thing. It's not just enough to know that God is your shield, that God is your glory, that God is the lifter of your head. What David does next is he has some action. It's not just enough to know these things, not just enough to bring your burdens to the Lord. He goes to God and he does something with it. The next verse is verse four, and he says, I cried aloud to my God. He knows who God is, but now he does something with that knowledge. He cries out to the Lord. And for you and me, as I've been looking online, I've been looking at social media, I, I found out that we as people are really good at crying out to people, we're really good at crying out to our neighbors. We're good at crying out to politicians. We're good at crying out to officials, at, econom- at the financial advisors, economists, We're able to cry out so well to these people, but it's not very often that we cry out to God. And then really, who do we think is in control? What value is it for us to go and blow up social media and let everyone know, this is all going bad? Or should we rather instead use our time to go cry out to the Lord in these things? And when you do that, it shows to everyone that Christians, they don't have this thing that we're supposed to have, which is this peace that passes understanding. But maybe you're sitting there going, well, I'm a believer and I've been blowing up social media and I am freaking out. Where is that peace that passes understanding? Well, the Bible tells us that peace, it's conditional. You have to do something to earn that peace. And here's what Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says. If you want the peace that passes understanding, you must in everything by prayer and supplication in thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So here's what we're supposed to do. Absolutely, you bring your burdens and your pains and your frustrations, but you don't bring them to social media. You don't bring them to your neighbors, but you bring them to the Lord. And here's the thing, when someone comes to you and they're laying out all of their burdens, they're crying out, maybe not physically with tears, but they're letting you know all this is going bad, what they're revealing to you is a lack of peace in their life. That's what they're revealing. That's what you're revealing when you're blowing up social media and you're letting everyone else know how bad things are. You're revealing a lack of peace. And what you and I are called to do as believers is to ask in boldness, have you talked to Jesus about this thing? If you haven't, can I talk to Jesus with you? And here's what you do. You pray, you cry out to the Lord and you say, God, here's all the problems. Here's all the things that we're facing. Here's all the difficulty that's ahead of us. But you, God, you're our shield. You're in, a, you're in it with us. You haven't forgotten us. You haven't abandoned us. You remember who I am. God, you're what gives my life value. Even if everything else leaves me, I know you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. You'll never forget who I am. And God, you offer a perspective that no one else can And then that ultimately, I believe it leads you to a place of thankfulness where you end your prayers that used to be so overwhelming and stressful. You end in praise and thanksgiving going, thank you, God. I know who my God is. I know my God cares for me. I think so often we focus our prayers on us and not on the Lord. We serve a God who's not distant, a God who is present. And here's what happens when you pray like that. You get 
what David experiences in verse five and six is the providence of God. He experiences rest. He gets sleep. How many of us, when we've been thinking through our problems, your brain just starts spinning and you can't sleep? You're stuck with a whole bunch of anxiety because you've got all these what ifs. Well, what if my job never recovers? What if I'm not hired back on? What if, what if there's no more food? What if someone I love gets sick? What if the hospitals fill up and there's just all these what ifs? Do you think that David had any what ifs? David's in the worst situation of his whole life. Make him saying, well, what if Absalom finds me? What if I got a spy in the camp? What if one of my own men turns against me? He's got a bunch of what ifs, but what happened is when he was able to go to the Lord, he was able to get reassurance in a way that nothing else could. And when he wakes up from a sleepless, a sleep-filled night, he wakes up with confidence and assurance because notice what happens with his perspective and his attitude in verse six. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves all around me. David, all of a sudden, where we're introduced to him in this midst of tribulation and, oh God, save me, he ends up with, man, it doesn't matter how many thousands of people have set themselves against me. I know who my God is. All of a sudden, he's got courage. He goes, man, if situations, if circumstances were even worse, I don't have to be afraid. And notice this. He's not saying that he'll never be tempted to be afraid. Because, man, he's gonna be tempted at every minute of every day of his life to be afraid. But what he's saying is that fear's not gonna drive what I do and who I am. I'm not gonna allow that fear to take hold of me and drive me to go and panic, to drive me go and buy out stores, to drive me to freak out. Instead, I'm gonna ask, where does my help come from? The Psalm David writes later, where does my help come from? Does my help come from my job or what I have or my throne that I made exclusively out of paper mache toilet paper? No, my help comes from the Lord, that I've got the maker of heaven and earth on my team. I've got the God that when he spoke, entire planets were formed, and he's in this with me. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So it doesn't mean that you'll never experience fear again, but it means that you don't have to let that fear drive you. You don't have to let that fear take hold of your heart and bring you places that you don't wanna be. When he knows who God is and what God can do, here's what David does in verse seven and eight, and I'm wrapping up. He says, arise, O Yahweh, which every Hebrew kid would know this because in order for Hebrews, Israelites to become men, they would have to quote scripture. They have to know the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, word for word. And so he quotes Numbers 10, 35. What he's affirming here is, I know who my God is. My God is the God that brought all of the Israelites out of Egypt. My God is the God who took them out of the hands of a way more wicked king than my son is. I know that my God is the God who could, amongst completely impossible circumstances, where there's a red sea in front of the Israelites, he can split it and do things that no one can expect, that no one would ever think was coming. In the middle of hard times, what this tells me, and I believe what this is speaking to us, is we have to know Scripture, because to think back about Luke chapter four, where Jesus is being tempted by Satan with everything Satan brings to him, everything Satan brings to get Jesus to fail and to fall and to give up, Jesus doesn't argue with Satan. He doesn't argue with the enemy. He quotes scripture. He's so steeped and meditated on scripture that 
Satan can't get him to fail. Satan can't get him to react to fear. Satan can't get him to give in to his own desires or wants. No, Jesus knows scripture, and that's yours and my, our biggest tool in all of this. Nothing will be able to expel your fear like quoting scripture. Like, look at Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through my routine that strengthens me. Wait, no, oops. Oh, my career. Oh, that's a different translation. My finances. No. Oh, sorry, it's this one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How about Proverbs 18.10? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Well, what's my strong tower? What's my security? What's my defense? What do I trust in in hard times? Because everything else will fail unless I'm trusting in the name of the Lord. And what happens through this, David says in verse seven, arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David finds that fear's got no teeth anymore. That his fear, the thing that used to scare him, the thing that was there, it's got no teeth. For you and me, the biggest thing that we could ever fear is to die. It's death. That's the worst case scenario. But what the Bible tells you and me is that Jesus has conquered death. That on the cross, Jesus took death and he kicked its teeth in. And while it's still scary and while it's still present and while it can still freak us out, it can no longer bite you anymore. It can no longer hurt you in the way that it used to. It doesn't mean you're destruction. It doesn't mean the destruction of who you are. Instead, it tells us that there's future glory for you. There's only greater things for you from here on. So what the Bible is telling you and me is that even if death, the thing that we were most afraid of, if that's actually our victory, is there anything really in life that we have to be afraid of? Losing my job is scary, but it doesn't have any teeth anymore when I take it to the Lord. All, losing the way that I used to provide, not having the right amount of food, whatever, all these things I used to be afraid of, it doesn't have any teeth anymore. And for you and me, when we come up with these fears, that they just seem to grip us. You're like, I know God is my shield. I know he hasn't abandoned me. I know all of these things, but I'm still afraid. What we have to do is take that fear to the cross. Because here's how David finishes. He says, Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessings be on your people. When we take our fear to the cross, when we bring those things to Jesus, you and me are remembering and we're in light of the God who made everything, the God who is infinite, the God who knows all, who sees all, who made a plan for everything. That God looked at you and said, I love you so much, I would give, I would give of myself for you, even if it means me dying. And guys, we have to know this, which we know so much more than David, is that God, he doesn't hold our sin against us. That even though there's still consequences for our sin, even though there's still things that are scary all around, we have a God that we are able to come to who knows exactly what we are feeling, exactly what we are going through. We have a God who was born into a poor family, who he wasn't provided for all the time. We have a God who had friends who abandoned him, who social distanced themselves from him when he was at his most needy, most vulnerable, most, the, the hardest time of his whole life. We have a God who spent some, life, some of his life homeless. We have a God who everyone else said bad things about him and who murdered him. 
We have a God who understands every single hardship, every single difficulty, every single peril that we could ever go through. And he did that for you and for me. That he could take not only all of our guilt and offer us forgiveness, but he did that so he could take all of our shame and offer us honor. And he did it so he could take all of our fear and offer us power that we can only get in Christ Jesus. He can take all of your fear and kick its teeth in. So guys, this week, if I could ask anything of you, it would be to use this time to draw near to that God unlike you ever have before. That your prayer life would exponentially grow. That your ability to memorize and dive into scripture would be unlike any other time in your life. And at this time, while everyone else just sees suffering and chaos and hardship, that you'd be built up into people of endurance and character and hope because you know your God is with you in these hard things. And he understands and he hears that God will never deprive himself of you. And through him alone can we receive peace. So guys, let's pray. And we're going to take communion together. And there was a season where uh, I was teaching in a high school group, and we were going to take communion. And I remember um, I said, okay, guys, we're going to take communion tonight. And I didn't tell any other helpers. It just kind of felt like we were going to. And Katie Heater came up, and she goes, Justin, there's no communion. We don't have anything here. And I said, don't worry. I got this. And so I ran into the back room, and I grabbed Pepsi. That's all I had. And I filled all of our communion cups here in the office full of Pepsi. And then we still had some crackers. They're like Cheez-Its or maybe they were even goldfish. It really doesn't matter. But I remember the faces on the kids because it's dark when we were taking communion. And they said, let's take the cup. They took the cup. They're like, ah, because it was Pepsi and not. Anyway, you get it. It doesn't matter what you're using for communion today. You take whatever is available to you. What matters is that we're doing it in remembrance of our God who gave everything for us. So I'm gonna pray and we'll take communion together. Jesus I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you so much that you have saw us even at our worst and that you gave everything for us. Now I'm so thankful that even though we're gonna experience hard times, even though this is not what any of us would have wanted, I'm so thankful that we can use this time to draw near to a God who sees us a God who knows us, a God who hears us and remembers us, who will never leave us or forsake us.